Hello, and welcome to Department 12, where we talk about everything IO Psych. I'm your host, Dr. Ben Butina. Joining me today is Dr. Jamie Madigan. How are you today, Jamie? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks uh, for having me on. Jamie has a PhD in IO Psych from the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and his mission in life is to popularize the understanding of how psychology can be used to understand why games are made, how they are, and why players behave and think as they do. Jamie, you've written hundreds of articles and blog posts and podcasts on these topics and served as an expert guest for dozens of TV shows, radio shows, and podcasts, as well as print articles. And you're also the host of your own podcast, The Psychology of Video Games. But today I'd like to talk to you about your latest book, The Engagement Game, Why Your Workplace Culture Should Look More Like a Video Game. Who is this book for? Who's the audience? It's mostly for people who want to become better at their job of, of management or, or a leader, at least are, have a passing familiarity with video games or somebody who knows people who are really into video games because the basic idea is, is to look at, yeah, like what is the psychology behind good game design say about how to be a better manager, a better leader? How do you get people feedback? How do you motivate them? How do you set goals? How do you create the kind of climate and culture that you want in your organization mm-hmm. and all of that? So, yeah, I think it's anybody who wants to be better at their job and once that advice sort of packaged in something very familiar and frankly entertaining like video mm-hmm. games. You've spent most of your career exploring the psychology of video games. What made you decide to flip that script and say, hey, I'm going to write a book that explains work psychology through video game examples or concepts? It was mostly because when I would be writing these articles or talking to these podcast guests about things like why are people motivated to play games or how do games do feed? I was going back to a lot of the IO psychology literature, drawing on decades old research and research programs around very basic things around motivation, engagement, feedback, goal setting. You know, these are all things that good game design makes proper use of. And in a lot of ways, they make better use of than we see in the workplace or education and so forth. So I saw just a lot of overlap there sort of naturally occurring as well as other areas of psychology like social psychology and consumer psychology. So there wasn't so much like what does gaming psychology have to say, but it was more like what does IO psychology have to say about these broad topics and how does that often get applied to video games and how can you learn from that application. I I don't think that the content of the book is going to be surprising to most of my listeners. Most of Mm -hmm. my listeners are either IO psychologists or or students, but we're all kind of IO nerds. So hopefully a lot of this is already stuff that we know and the book's not for us. But I did want to talk to you about is that I think the book can serve as a model for us as science communicators. We know we're not doing science communication as well as we need to. Communication is a pretty big deal for us. We're an applied field. Our ability to help other people depends on our ability to explain what we know to employees and managers and executives in a way that's understandable and persuasive to them. But when it comes down to actually changing our behavior or doing things new, it doesn't seem to advance much past how do we make this research abstract get to the eighth grade reading level or something. Right. Um, Instead of doubling down on doing what wasn't working before, you went in a completely new direction. And and part of what I admire uh, about the book is the tone. You write uh, like a regular person, for lack of a better phrase. You don't write like an academic. I will take that as a compliment. You should. That's definitely how it's intended. Do you have any advice to offer on how to revise our tone 
so that we're writing in a more conversational, accessible way for ordinary readers. Everything you just described resonates with me. One of my professors back in grad school always said that it, research is not complete until it's communicated. It's got to go all the way back out and it's got to be shared with other people. That's like one of the last steps in the scientific method is that you share it with others. Often in the same breath, those grad school professors were trying to get us to write exclusively in this very academic style, the kind of style you would see in textbooks or journal articles, you know, top tier journal articles where it was very stiff. Matter of fact, there was no illustration. There was little context. A lot of times I always kind of balked at that and to maybe to the point of having to revise some of my own papers based on feedback that my professors gave me. But once I got out there and was calling my own shots and doing stuff like this, I always just wanted to make it more entertaining because if it's entertaining, it's engaging and people understand it and recall it from memory more effectively. And it serves its purpose better, the extent to which people can remember it and, and understand it. As far as advice goes, the tone of, of the stuff that I've written always has sort of that jokey conversational style where I'll make dumb jokes. And the engagement game actually has a little less of that than some of the other stuff I've written, like my previous book, Getting Gamers, which is more broadly about the psychology of video games. And then stuff that I wrote on the website at Psychology of Games, I would do stupid jokes and tell dumb stories, a frame and a context for whatever it was that I'm trying to explain. And I would use examples mostly from video games because that's what people were coming there for and what they were interested in. But, you know, for my life experiences or stories I'd heard about other people, that's one of the consistent things I've done. And probably one of the biggest pieces of advice to answer your question would be tell stories. People are attracted to stories. We're creatures that like to tell and and hear stories. That's one thing that I try to do throughout the book is each topic, you know, I would start with a story of a person I heard about, or if I was recalling an experiment, I would try to tell a story about what the researchers might've been doing or thinking and kind of try to make sure that if I was joking, that that was apparent to people, I was getting inside the researcher's head for the sake of a joke, make sure that yeah. it's clear, but always in service of context and making people understand the larger point. So tell stories, don't be afraid to take the space to do that. That's great advice because everybody has different stories to share as well. Their style might not be as humorous, uh, might be more straightforward, or <laughs> maybe they go for a warmer angle rather than a humorous one. I think there's lots of ways to do this, and but yeah. I would encourage anybody listening to this to read this book or read some of the articles from your website and just get a feel for the way uh, science can be communicated in that informal, conversational way and still be serious. Jumping back to the book for a minute, a lot of my listeners have written academic papers, but they've never written a book for a popular audience. What would surprise us about that process of writing a popular book? I can only talk to my experiences, but I think one thing that surprised me was how much complete free reign I was given. The way it works for nonfiction books is that you generally write a very detailed proposal that, you know, breaks down chapter by chapter, two or three paragraphs about what that chapter is going to be like. And then you have a bunch of information about your platform and why you're an expert in this area and what you can do to market the book. Once they sign off on that in both of the books that I have written, like the editors were not in my business at all. And I would turn stuff in that has the tone that we've talked about so far where it's entertaining and humorous and irreverent in, in some ways and nobody balked they were just like hey you're you're the book writer you're the expert you know do what you want and the only thing i ever had anybody push back on me was wanting to do like the joke footnotes 
that I do on my blog all the time. Yeah. And they were like, no, that's not going to work for the formatting people. But besides that, they just accepted what I sent in. And I, I guess I, before my first book, had expected a little bit more interaction and back yeah. and forth than there was there. Maybe it's like that for other authors and other publishers, but it wasn't for me. Now, another thing that's part of science communication, we get calls to be references for articles on websites or newspapers or magazines. I get those calls, but they're infrequent. And so I don't feel like I get much better at them. In fact, for me, it's pretty much the same way with video games is that I will pick mm. up my sons and I'll play a little bit, but I, I never really get enough reps in to get better <laughs> at what I'm doing. And I feel yeah. it's the same way with, with these kind of interviews because I've had these experiences where I feel like the interview part of it went well. And then when I read the article that the journalist created, I'm disappointed in not so much the quote that they picked, but the fact that it didn't seem to convey what I shared with them, or it was presented in a context that made it seem like I was saying something they didn't really intend. When you only do that a half dozen times over the course of your life, you tend not to get a whole lot better at it. You've had significantly more reps than most of us ever will. So you've been interviewed about the psychology of games tons and tons of times. Can you think of any advice to offer us on how to, to better present ourselves to media requests? I usually ask the person ahead of time when they're, they're trying to set up the call or do an email interview, what questions are you trying to answer? And to the extent that they can provide me with a list of questions that helps me prepare, I'll sit down, I'll sketch out some answers. And a lot of times they'll not have anything specific. They just mean mm -hmm. like, well, I want to know, like, why do people like video games? And I'll push back. That's too broad a question for me to answer. Like that, what specifically do you want to know about and get them to sort of narrow in. And sometimes those conversations proceed to a point where I say, I, I can't help you. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody reach out and say like, what does my choice of character in Mario Kart say about my personality? And, <laughs> and the answer is nothing. It says, nothing. it says that you like Donkey Kong. There's no hook for me to hang anything on there. So, you know, I'm sorry. I'm a I mini Princess Peach for what it, yeah, for what exactly. it, yeah, it matters. <laughs> a lot of times I'll just say, I can't help you with that. Or maybe here's a name of somebody else you might want to talk to. I've also gotten to the point where I decline interviews on certain topics. Like, I, I don't really have anything new to say about the question of violence and violent media and violent games and the effects of those or video game addiction, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll just refer them to other statements and other sources that, you know, that's pretty much what there is to say about that topic. And you can sometimes get a, an idea for what their agenda might be or what they want to say or what they're fishing for. You just kind of have the conviction to step back mm -hmm. from that sort of situation where you're not going to be able to contribute anything to the discussion. Or if you do, it's going to be diced and picked apart and presented in the different context, like you were describing before. Know your limitations and when you think yeah. you can make a contribution versus repeating some warmed over crap that you've heard other people say. Yeah. And I've definitely told people like, I, I'm not an expert in that. People will hear like, oh, psychology and video games. And they'll want to ask me about mental health issues. I'll say, I'm not that kind of psychologist. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a work psychologist. I'm an IO psychologist. And Here's the name of a couple of people that you might approach that do know about that stuff. So knowing your limits, doing the prep work uh, ahead of time, and it's no problem to ask a, a journalist to send a list of questions ahead of time. Another piece of advice I heard from there is don't be afraid to redirect. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think the question's too broad or that it's not really answerable in its current format, 
you can redirect and say, well, here's the kind of question that I can answer that might be yeah. more what you're trying to get at. Yeah, totally. And sometimes, despite all that, they'll still cherry pick what you said or present it in a different context and something like that. And, you know, that's just the way it goes. Sometimes you can choose not to talk to that person again in the future if you think that it was deliberate or gross, but otherwise you just kind of got to move on. Thank you very much. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure my audience has as well. I'm going to encourage everyone listening to please check out uh, the show notes for Jamie's full bio, a transcript of today's show and links to some of Jamie's work, because I have to say, I think it's especially going to be useful for anybody with any kind of connection to video games, but I think it is going to be useful and enlightening for anyone who hopes to convey IO psychology ideas to ordinary people. And hopefully that's all of us. So thank you again, Jamie. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it.